1: Is it just me or is anyone else super fucking in order to TikTok lately? Hi, I'm Rachel Hampton, and you're listening to I See Why Am I. In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. Hello, hello, my beautiful little parasocial friends. Congratulations on making it through another week. Honestly, God bless all of us. I hope y'all have some enriching plans for this weekend, because me personally... I'm in the seventh ring of hell, moving apartments, because New York housing is, it is, it is what it is. So please send any good moving vibes y'all have for me and my roommate and poor Masha, the cat, who is going to be going through it this weekend. But this show is not about me or Masha. Well, it kind of is. It's definitely not about Masha, but it's kind of about me. But today's episode is definitely not about me, though it did start with one of those age-old questions that come to me late at night. And that question is, the internet's getting worse, right? Not not to be all like, back in my day, we walked uphill both ways in snow for four miles to get to school. But back in my day, when I searched for something, I was reasonably sure the answer would come up within the first few pages of search results. Or if I checked Instagram, I'd... I don't know, see photos of my friends. Or if I scroll through Twitter, I'd see tweets from the people I choose to follow. Or if some cool new company popped up, it wouldn't be immediately bought by Meta or Amazon and scrapped for parts. But that just is not true anymore. And so I lie in my bed at night thinking, why? And also, when will that car alarm stop? Thankfully, someone has an answer to the first question. And the answer is, in Yes, you heard that correctly, inshittification. Journalist and science fiction author Cory Doctorow came up with a term in a recent piece that was published by Wired, appropriately called the inshittification of TikTok. In the piece, he describes how platforms entice users, onto said platforms to then entice sellers onto these platforms to then screw both of these parties over to make money. And after a short break, Cory will be here with me to talk about that process of inshittification, what it looks like on platforms from Amazon to Google to Facebook, and whether or not inshittification is inevitable. Dick Van Dyke also makes a cameo, so you definitely don't want to miss this convo. And I'm back with Cory Doctorow, a journalist and co-author of the book Chokepoint Capitalism, How Big Tech and Big Content Captured Creative Labor Markets and How We Win Them Back. As I mentioned before the break, he also recently wrote a phenomenal piece for Wired with maybe one of the best headlines I've ever seen, The in of TikTok. Corey, welcome to ICYMI. I'm so glad you could join us.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah, I actually, the way that I got that headline into Wired is I didn't write it for Wired. I have a a blog called pluralistic.net that is Creative Commons Attribution Only Licensed. And I published it there. It's my solo project after I left Boeing Boeing in 2020. And it's really like me writing whatever I want and then putting it out there for other people if they like it to republish it. And Wired liked it and republished it. I don't know, having written a lot for Wired, I don't know if I could have gotten that headline in <laughs> on my own. But
1: It's a phenomenal headline. And we will get into the institutionification. I was talking about this with our supervising producer, but... I spend a lot of time online necessarily for work, and I feel like it's really great when someone describes a dynamic that I've noticed but haven't quite been able to put my finger on. So in shitification, tell me about this word. How did you come up with it, and what
2: does it mean? (laughs) So I came up with it in a in a slightly different context, although it kind of – it was the loose thread I tugged on that unraveled this idea. We were on vacation in Puerto Rico, and we were staying in this, like, cottage in a, a cloud forest reserve with almost no internet. There was a microwave point-to-point relay, and whenever it rained, it stopped working. So you get, like, one packet per minute, you know? And we were trying to figure out where to drive into town for dinner. So we were trying to get onto TripAdvisor. And all that you could get from TripAdvisor was their favico, the little icon, the, the vector icon that shows up in your browser tab. And it would just time out trying to connect all the tracking servers that it used to figure out what ads to show you. Yep. And I was <laughs> like, does anyone on TripAdvisor ever take a trip? Because, you know, <laughs> when I take a trip, I have bad internet yeah. and, you know, like the, the surveillance lag here isn't just like, you know, a gross offense to human dignity. It also inshittifies this product. So uh, this was uh, back before Twitter got inshittified so you could queue up threads. So I, I wrote a thread about how angry I was about this <laughs> and used that word and then, uh, you know, was able to hit publish on it when we drove into town for dinner eventually and uh, figured out where we wanted to go. So that was that was where it came from. As as to what it means, I mean, it's a little self-explanatory, like it's not your imagination. The internet's getting worse. I know this is old man yells at clouds territory, but uh, <laughs> it, it is, I think, legit getting worse. And I think that there's a life cycle that explains why it gets worse, which is that when, uh, if you're operating a two-sided market, which is kind of the thing that everybody who has the internet wants to do, right? This Everybody wants to be a platform. So, you know, Google, like there are people who publish things on the internet. There's people who want to find things on the internet. Google intermediates between them with a search box. Um, but another way of thinking about it is that they're, you know, uh, apropos the title of my last book, that they're a choke point between uh, an audience and uh, um, a, a pool of creators or customers and, and sellers. And the difference amounts to how much freedom sellers and buyers have. And so the imperative of the platform is to try to figure out how to reduce that freedom and how to, to do something that economists call shifting surplus. So a surplus is just like the economist term for all the stuff that is left over once you've run the service right? So it's 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 literally, it's the surplus, right? It's the stuff that, that you gain. The, you could call it profit, but that's a more specific term. And so when platforms start, they want to allocate a lot of surplus to their users, right? So Amazon kicks off and they're like, we're just going to burn shareholder money. You're going to get free shipping and we're going to, eat the cost of it. You're going to get deep discounts on products. We're going to sell you products for less than we buy them for. We're going to give you free returns. We're going to eat that cost. Uh, And so customers kind of get sucked into Amazon's silo, and then it tries to lock the door behind them. So for ebooks and audiobooks, it puts DRM on them.
1: And DRM stands for digital rights management, which is basically the copyright that applies to digital objects like
2: Kindle books. It's a felony to remove that DRM. Right, punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a five hundred thousand-dollar fine. So this is one way to kind of wrap you, lock you in. Another way is like they get you to prepay for a year shipping with Prime. Uh, people who have Prime like don't shop anywhere else, and so y- you get merchants flocking to the platform right you've got kind of bait set you got a honey trap for merchants merchants show up they all show up to try and figure out how to build the everything store that Jeff Bezos said he wanted to build and Bezos starts to shift the surplus from buyers to sellers so now they're like giving them easy ways to get to the top of search results they're subsidizing their shipping they're subsidizing uh, their product prices they're subsidizing their returns they're managing a lot of customer service they're making things really easy for them and And so the sellers get really locked in too. They become like hardcore sellers. They don't have um, high commissions. A lot of uh, brick and mortar stores start to go away. So customers now, it's like not only have you prepaid for a year shipping with Prime, not only uh, are you locked in with with all kinds of DRM, but also there's like just nowhere else to buy stuff increasingly. So you become an Amazon, committed Amazon buyer. Well, now this is like more surplus Amazon can harvest from you and they can give it to sellers. So they start doing uh, like payola deals for sellers where you can like get put at the top of a result of a thing that a buyer didn't even search for. It's kind of a way of convincing sellers that they're really good at Amazon. And I compare this to um, to like when you go to the county fair and you go to the Midway, uh, you'll see some poor sucker walking around with a giant teddy bear, right? And it's like, he thinks he's really good at throwing balls in a peach basket but what actually happened is the carney was like here's a look- likely looking fellow let's give him the giant teddy bear so he either like didn't operate the thing that knocks the ball out of the bucket or or he um he did one of those deals where it's like well you got one ball in that gets you a keychain but tell you what <laughs> play one more round win another keychain i'll let you trade it for the giant teddy bear either way this guy thinks that he's like really good at throwing balls in peach baskets, and so he walks around all day with this increasingly ungainly giant teddy bear, convincing other people to spend five bucks on the on the thing. So you know, just like every Londoner thinks that they're Warren Buffett because they had the incredible idea of living somewhere in 1970, <laughs> and now their 30,000 pound home is worth two million pounds, right? Mm-hmm. This guy thinks that he's like he's like the Louis Pasteur of throwing balls in a peach basket and and telling everyone else that they should do it too. So now that the sellers are locked in. It's time for Amazon to shift the surplus to itself. So that's Amazon today. 50% of the first five pages of search results are ads. Of the remaining 50%, a significant fraction are things that um, Amazon has cloned from its top sellers. The ads that Amazon has—they're not really ads; they're payola. So what Amazon does is it charges merchants and makes them bid against each other to go to the top of the results when you're when you're shopping. And so it's not the thing you search for. If you search for for cat beds, you find dog houses, right? You find like it's just it's just random crap that Amazon is sticking in there. Now that's not good for you. It's not good for sellers. Amazon makes 31. $1 billion dollars a year, making sellers pay to be the result when you search for them, right? To stop you from finding them, right? It pits the sellers against each other. And so, you know, now we're in like terminal stage and shitification. And what Amazon's kind of like ideal state is to ride the edge right between being so inshittified that no one will use it anymore and being just not inshittified enough that everyone continues to use it. And that way, all of the available surplus can be harvested for Amazon shareholders. And then it's just it's very hard to de-inshittify yourself. So this is kind of where Twitter and Facebook are right now. You can see them having gone through exactly the same path. And now Facebook is just a cesspit. And Twitter is headed that way. You know, as I wrote in the article, I have half a million Twitter followers. Um, the day they turned on Twitter Blue and said, for $8, we'll rocket you to the top of your your uh, followers' mentions, you know, the, the unsaid corollary of that is if you don't pay us $8, you're going to the bottom. And I went from writing threads that had 100,000 reads to writing threads that had 500 reads just overnight. And I gave them eight bucks and the article we're talking about now, which started as a Twitter thread, has had a million reads. And so that's what the $8 got me, right? They are, they are charging me to reach the people who want, who want to hear from me. And that's not good for them. It's not good for me, but it is good for Twitter shareholders. It's good for that guy whose name I can never remember who made the cars and the stupid tunnels. elon musk that guy whatever it's not it can't be a real name it's
1: not a name worth remembering i can tell you right now apartheid clyde is my favorite name for him
2: (laughs) i think apartheid emerald mind space karen is pretty good though
1: (laughs) that one is also really good it's a bit it's a bit wordy (laughs) apartheid clyde has a nice ring to it (laughs) yeah rolls off the tongue It does. It does. What I really love about this analysis, this kind of framework of incentivification is that I think it's kind of universally recognized that the internet is worse now. But with features and platforms like Amazon specifically, a lot of the blame for that gets shifted onto consumers. And obviously, we can all choose not to have an Amazon Prime subscription. But something that you mentioned in your piece is the way that it's so much harder to find things outside of Amazon because of the incentives that Amazon gave to sellers to be on that platform. Um, I'm going to read the lead of your piece, which is phenomenal. It goes, here's how platforms die. First, they are good to their users. Then they abuse their users to make things better for their business customers. Finally, they abuse those business customers to claw back all the value for themselves, and then they die. And with Amazon specifically, you mentioned the Amazon Smile program and the demise of that. And I, I'm curious if you could talk a bit more about that and how it plays into this and
2: Yeah, so if you if you remember Smile, like if you ever had like a kid on a little league team or, you, you know, you're a member of church or whatever, you would get these exhortations. If you're ever shopping on Amazon, uh, start at our Smile page and then search from there. Um, and what that did was it spared Amazon from paying commissions to Google, which is where most people start their Amazon searches. And there are a couple of reasons they did that. One is that just people search on Google. Google is a monopoly. They have more than 90% of the search market. But the other one is that Amazon has been in shitifying its search interface. And so over time... Amazon search is more and more of things that they want you to see not the things you want to see and Google has a different set of imperatives and so they didn't want to pay commissions to Google and they also wanted to reap the benefit of having you do native searches so they could they could monetize and shitification and so smile was a way to basically give pennies to charities in exchange for making you kind of go through their preferred portal, kind of arrange your affairs to the benefit of Amazon shareholders instead of your own.
1: And it's, again, another way that people get trapped into using these platforms almost without recognizing that it's happening. And a line that really struck me in your piece, I'm sorry to keep reading your writing back to you, but a line that really struck me was, working for the platform can be like working for a boss who takes money out of every paycheck for all the rules you broke, but who won't tell you what those rules are because if he told you that, then you'd figure out how to break those rules without him noticing and docking your pay. And I think that really accurately captures the kind of underlying animus of a lot of conversations, specifically around influencers and on Mm -hmm. TikTok and about understanding algorithms and about what makes creators go viral. But the conclusion you came to is basically
2: those rules aren't real, right? Oh, they're a mix, right? There are some real rules, And then there's also some um, real uh, uh, rewards, right? So there are some things they want to see. There are some things they don't want to see. But then there's also just like a dial they turn that's just like, we like you today. We're just going to give you a lot and then we're going to turn it off. Specifically, it's in relation, I was writing in relation to TikTok's heating tool, which Forbes published an excellent piece about, which is basically just a knob that they turn that uh, takes videos that a given person has uploaded and puts them in the feeds of lots of people whom the algorithm wouldn't normally put it in. And um, it makes that person whose v- video has gone viral feel like they're good at TikTok, so they retool to be TikTok performers. So there's that, right? There's the stuff the algorithm se- selects as a kind of unnatively. natively which, you know, represents some kind of editorial judgment, even if that editorial judgment is, like, staying longer is an editorial judgment. I want people to stay longer is an editorial judgment. So there's the the thing the editorial decision as embodied in the algorithm wants, right? There's the the thing that they manually go in and punish you for. So they're just like, oh, our advertisers don't like it when people talk about gay stuff. So we're just going to, like, anything that looks like gay stuff, we're just going <laughs> to... Nerf. Even if it just gets tons of engagement, we're just gonna like manually go in there and just go no, no, no. This is the shadow banning that people uh, worry about uh, on the right. They're like maybe there's a woke Twitter mob, Illuminati that are secretly you know nerfing mentions of ivermectin or whatever. And you know there might in fact be like it's not beyond the pale to imagine that people's editorial preferences are embodied in the the way that the algorithm works. It's very common actually for. When you have machine learning algorithms, when they produce outcomes that you don't like, to just go in and manually override them. So you remember Google mm. had the scandal where searching its image database for gorillas turned up pictures of black people. And mm-hmm. they couldn't fix it, so they just manually excluded it, right? It's just like they just went in. So this is one of the things Tim De Gebru disclosed when she left Google is like the way they fixed this was by just like manually writing a rule flipping the switch, yeah, yeah so they never figured out how to like unracist the algorithm. They just had like someone who who went in and was just like had a shepherd's crook that when you know the 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 racism started, you know, someone just like <laughs> ah! yeah, <laughs> you know <laughs>
1: Let's get that out of here.
2: Yeah, it's like, you know, Grandpa's great, but when he starts talking about the war, you got to get just, him away from the thing Let's just get him out
1: the room. Let's yeah. move on to another topic.
2: <laughs> Take him outside for a beer and get him talking about ball games or something.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, you know, I I this reminds me, I'm sorry, this is a terrible tangent, but one of the last things I did before lockdown was I went and saw Bernie Sanders. And he he his warm-up acts were just this incredible string of like it was it was public enemy and then it was Patrice Colors. But then it was Dick Van Dyke who was confused and thought he was the last guy who was going to introduce him. And Dick Van Dyke's okay, he's a comrade and all. But like he um he was like he was like vamping because he thought Sanders was late. And so he was like How about nuclear bombs? Like, I'm against them but we probably did have to drop them on Japan. What do you think, folks? And everyone in <laughs> the audience was like, "What?"
0: Uh...
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is not so, what we signed up for. <laughs> yeah, so like, you know, you got to have a shepherd's crook, right? You can you can teach yeah. Dick Van Dyke to say all the right things, but but as soon as he starts talking about nukes, mm-hmm. someone's got to run out and say, "Start playing the playoff music. <laughs> yeah, Bernie's got something really important to tell you backstage right now." <laughs> Don't tell that story. <laughs> Well,
1: on that note, I think we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, Corey and I will keep talking about those hard and soft rules around these platforms' algorithms and why these regulations are so important to a good and fun internet. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show.
0: but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hi, y'all.
1: Hope you're enjoying today's show. If this is your first time listening to ICymi, then welcome. We are so thrilled to have you here. It's a party every single week twice a week, because we come out on Wednesdays and Saturdays. So make sure you never miss an episode like this past Wednesdays, which was on the real history of the American girl doll known as Addie Walker. We have Ayesha Harris, a co-host of Pop Culture Happy Hour, on. It's a phenomenal conversation. And we're back. As you were saying before the break, Corey, it's not that there aren't rules to these algorithms. It's that the rules aren't necessarily
2: super transparent. And they kind of change at the whim of the platforms, right? So there are things the algorithm doesn't want. There's things the algorithm does want. And then there's the things that where they just go in and they're like, this is what we want. And if you're a performer, they don't tell you any of that, right? Because content moderation is the only information security domain in which we say security through obscurity is valid. Right where like if if you know the rules, then the rules stop working everywhere else. Like you know, if you ever have someone who's like, "Well, I've developed this new cryptography system, but I can't tell you how it would work." You know, (laughs) run in the other direction as fast as you can. This lock is amazing, but if I told you how it worked, uh, burglars would figure it out. There's actually a name for this. The NSA has a name for this doctrine. It's called NoBus, which stands for "No one but us is smart enough to figure this out." And this is is the doctrine (laughs) under which they hoard vulnerabilities in commonly used operating systems and software. Packages So they can weaponize them. And then there was the Vault 7 and Vault 8 leaks that leaked a bunch of these. And we were able to go and look at the rate at which they were independently rediscovered and weaponized by other state actors and criminals. And it's about one in five per year. So, like, 20% per year. So, no bus is bullshit. Yeah,
1: basically doesn't work. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Bruce Schneier says anyone can devise a security system that works so well that they themselves can't think of a way of breaking it. But it doesn't mean that it works. It just means it works on people stupider than them. Yeah. So, like, in information security, we we don't do this, right? We don't say... Mm -hmm. Uh, we can't tell you how it works, so it'd stop working. But in content moderation, we're like, if we told you what we considered harassment, you would do a thing that was almost harassment, which to the person who experienced it would be indistinguishable from harassment. So the standard for harassment is written down in this giant three-ring binder Facebook has to moderate 3 billion people's lives in 1,000 languages in 100 countries. But we can't show you that page. <laughs> you're just going to have to take our word for it that you definitely violated the rule, mm-hmm. right? And And that means that if you're a performer... You go out and you spend hours and hours working on a video that Facebook or Twitter or Google or or MySpace or, or, or you know, um, uh, Bebo or TikTok has promised <laughs> you kind of implicitly that they're going to show to the people, at least the people who follow you. And you make it and then it's just crickets. And it's not that you were shadow banned necessarily because of what you said although that's sometimes the case right sometimes it's like oh there was just a gay word in there and so yeah. this is why you have people who talk about le dollar sign bean instead of mm-hmm. lesbian because yes. in their subtitles they spell it le dollar sign bean yes or unalive instead of suicide there's a brilliant gen z uh first page of harry potter floating around the meme verse if you can find it and uh <laughs> That's just using
1: these colloquialisms that yeah. are t- basically trying to escape TikTok censorship.
2: So the first chapter is called "The Boy Who Wasn't Unalive." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so the you know the 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 they won't tell you what it is. And so you have to do what I call plat- uh, platform Kremlinology, right? You go on these message boards for, for online performers. I don't like the word influencer, but like, you know, people who are creative and yeah. who are making work for an audience that wants to see the work. And it's just full of people like trading trips. They're like, it's like they're whispering like their abusive dad is in the next room and telling everyone else like what not to say to set them off because they're, and it's just theories, right? Cause dad won't tell you why he's angry. He's just going to, you know what you did. <laughs> mm-hmm. right? I'm not showing that video to other people. You know what's wrong with it. So, you know, that that platform Kremlinology is it's part of enshittification. It's also part of so like it's part of enshittification in lots of ways. One is you want to shift surplus from performers to advertisers so uh, and from audiences to advertisers. So advertisers don't want an ad to run against stuff that has um, some sexual connotation or that is controversial or political or upsetting or sad. And so audiences want to see the video. You, you want to show them the video, but the platform won't show them the video because they're shifting surplus to the advertiser. But then there's the other surplus they're shifting, which is just like we just don't want um, – We don't want to show the person all the videos they asked for, because if we clear like 10 slots from the number of videos we expect they'll see, we can either sell those spots to advertisers or to people who will pay payola. And and so either way, you know, this is why your feed just like isn't what you asked for. It's literally just not what you asked for, nor is it what they think you like. It is the minimum of what you asked for and what they think you like with as much shit as they can pile in there.
1: Which kind of directly contravenes the appeal of TikTok, which is how smart and intuitive this algorithm is. And I'm curious as to whether you think a tool like the heating tool Forbes broke the story about is inevitable with social media platforms, which I guess is kind of a broader question of is incentivification the inevitable future of social media platforms?
2: So, you know, economists talk, I'm not an economist, and I think most of them are full of shit, but I spend a lot of time trying to figure out what they believe, because I think that's how you find out how, how we got to this terrible place. But, but economists talk a lot about equilibria, right, about, about things that are stable, like outcomes that are stable based on incentives and design. And so there is um, an equilibrium that you would expect to emerge in terms of how much surplus non-shareholder actors were allowed to retain in a platform that is based on how easy it is for those actors to leave. So if it's easy for you as an audience member to go somewhere else and remain connected to the people who you want to hear from, whether those are your friends or the performers you subscribe to, then there's a limit to how badly they can treat you. So that's one thing, right? If it's easier to leave then they will be disciplined by the fear of defection. That's also true of business customers. I think that the other thing that disciplines firms is regulation. And designing good regulation is one way to make these uh, equilibria stable. And so one regulatory contour that we can imagine is punishment, for unfair and deceptive business practices, the FTC has broad authority under Section Five of the FTC Act to enforce against this. This is the basis on which Lena Khan has just prohibited um, uh, non-competes. It's how they went after junk fees. This is a remedy that is within the administrative reach of firms, I think, or, or rather of regulators, without necessarily new action from Congress. It's also highly administratable. So figuring out whether a company is violating net neutrality is really hard, but. When someone leaves the platform, do their listeners find out where they've gone to? Is a thing that you can test, and it's a binary, right? It's off or on. It's also easy to comply with. And so in terms of like, is this inevitable? Firms are paperclip maximizing colony organisms that treat human beings as inconvenient gut flora. And companies are going to act the way companies act. And that will be constrained by competition and regulation. And... If we neither promote competition, right? If we allow firms to eat all of their competitors by merging with them, you know, if Microsoft can buy Activision, if we allow them to capture their regulators, which they inevitably do when there's five companies in a sector, they can all agree on what their policy is going to be. If there's 100 companies in a the sector, they're not even going to agree on how to cater their annual meeting. Mm. But when there's five, they all sing from the same playbook. They all know each other. They all work their way up through the ranks at different firms with each other. And so um, they will neither be constrained by competition nor by regulation. And, you know, even if you're a libertarian who wants small government, and I think anyone who lived through 9-11 and the surveillance that came to the internet after that has to be at least a little suspicious of big government, then you should want this too, because governments have to be bigger than the companies they discipline. A regulator has to be more powerful than the thing they regulate. And so if you want small government, you need smaller companies. And so it doesn't matter where you're at on the political spectrum unless you're just like a pure authoritarian bootlicker, you know, or some like Ayn Rand adults would be master of the universe. Yeah. You, should, you should really want competition and regulation, which you, you can't have one without the other.
1: It's interesting because all of the the conversation around like competition is like what we're expected to experience as consumers and as creators like within these markets. It's it's the idea that when you're a content creator on TikTok, you're going to come up and you are an equal. You're on an equal playing field with whoever you can as long as you put in enough work, then you can be like Alex Earle or Charlie D'Amelio. And these heating tools and this process of machetification just kind of knocks out the idea of meritocracy that social media is theoretically predicated on and also kind of makes my job hard in that it's hard to spot real trends because what Mm -hmm. is being pushed into people's feeds, what is actually organic, Every influencer who manages to get 2 million followers in a month, is that organic? Or is that because TikTok has decided that they
2: are the person who gets the giant teddy bear? Yeah, I think that's entirely right. And I would say that this makes your job hard in another way, which is that all your podcasts go through one of two mobile operating systems. And that those two mobile operating systems are are exerting ever stricter and more fine-grained control. And it is a high wire act. You know, one of the things that um, is like legit weird and that a lot of sex workers have pointed out is that Tumblr lost its space on the App Store for having uh, nude imagery. But Twitter and Reddit are full of the most eye-watering, sexually explicit material you can imagine. And, you know, Apple says, that we're just enforcing our rules. But, you know, they can't have overlooked Reddit. And so they got a giant teddy bear at Reddit and goodness knows why, you know, maybe they're too big. That's what Matt Mullenweg, who, who owns Tumblr now thinks, he thinks that Apple just doesn't want to tangle with whatever 100 million Redditors, but they will tangle with uh, 10 million Tumblr users. I still have a Tumblr account, by the way. I love oh, Tumblr. Oh,
1: same. I'm a Tumblr girly to the very end.
2: <laughs> I'm uh, mostly signed someportents.tumblr.com.
1: I'm curious as to whether you think it's too late for TikTok to turn around the inshittification process, or is this the beginning
2: of the death knell? Yeah, I think it's very hard to change course, right? the the incentives for shareholders, executives, and product managers are all to maximize inshittification, right? Because, you know, if you're a product manager, your KPI is going to be, like, engagement, or whether or not you bring in, or, like, they're going to come in and they're going to say, hey, the... The uh, objective this quarter is going to be to bring in more people who care about sports. And so, like, they give you the heating tool. They tell you that whether or not you can afford a Christmas vacation is dependent on whether people who care about sports use your platform. And then they're just like, you figure it out. What are you going to do, right? You're going to go find a bunch of, you know... Uh, guys who have jock podcasts, and you're going to say, hey, why don't you try out TikTok? And when they do, you're just going to crank the heating tool up to 27, and and they're going to go, oh my God, I'm so good at TikTok. And likewise, if you're an exec... You know the profits are going to determine your compensation because your compensation is mostly share-based, and the shareholders like it when quarterly numbers look good, and they also really hate it when quarterly numbers look bad. And you know when that happens, it does kick off a death spiral because you know all of these firms they have a hiring advantage because they can pay using fake money, which is to say their own stock, instead mm-hmm. of real money, which is to say dollars. And uh, when your stock price starts going down, people want to get paid in money. And so this is one of the death spirals that we get. I mean, in the run-up to the dot-com crash in 2000, 2001, there was a lot of inshittification. There was just a lot of stupid stuff. There were a lot of, you know, pet food companies. And um, after the crash, stuff got amazing for a while, right? Because there was no one pressing the inshidification button. There was no incentive to do it. People who fell in love with computers because... They changed the way that they related to the world, connected them to communities, let them uh, build things that other people could use. They went out and they built amazing services, right? Just incredible technologies. This is where Blogger came from. It's where Flickr came from, and and you know, <laughs> Yahoo and and Google bought them all and and you know, and shitified them. But there was this moment where people were just making stuff. Because they wanted to make the best thing they could for the people that mattered to them, it was a wild time. And maybe you know that is the silver lining here. You know, when life gives you SARS, you make Sarsparilla. And maybe we're going to get from these these awful, just you know, brutal, uncaring layoffs. Maybe we'll get some technology for people.
1: Mm-hmm. That is perhaps the most optimistic note I think we've ended on on ICymi in a while. So thank <laughs> you so All much right. for thank joining you. me. <laughs>
2: It was my pleasure. Thank you.
1: All right. That is the show. We'll be back in your feed on Wednesday. So please subscribe. It is the best way to never miss an episode. The best way to never miss a new word like in I'm going to be using it all the time now. Please leave a rating and review in Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter, ICYMI underscore pod, which is also where you can DM us your questions like, the internet is worse, right? Like, it's it's bad. And you can also always drop us a note at icymy@slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Daniel Schrader and me, Rachel Hampton, with special thanks to Sierra Spragley-Ricks, Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of audio. See you online, or at a Bernie Sanders rally.
0: With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.